0: You are listening to Uncommentary. So I want to talk to you about one of my favorite bookstores. Hearts and Minds Books is located in Pennsylvania. I've never been there, but I have met the owner, Byron Borger, online, I think via Twitter. And um, I want to tell you why I use Hearts and Minds as often as I can. Uh, first, I'm a huge fan of independent booksellers. Uh, you know as well as I that when the great behemoth Amazon finally uh, began its quest to take over the world, um, that it is easy to order from Amazon, have the books delivered directly to your door. Uh, But over the course of several years, as Amazon was growing a lot of independent booksellers, mom-and-pop type shops, uh, they really suffered, and many of them went out of business. Well, there's been a resurgence, and I'm really glad about that. Uh, And one of my favorites is Hearts uh, Hearts and Minds Books, and so if you'll go to heartsandmindsbooks.com, now this is what's simple about it. You're not going to see an inventory page. You're not going to see, uh, you don't shop on heartsandmindsbooks.com in the way that you would at say being barnesandnoble.com. Um, basically go to the inquiry page, uh, and you can send a message to Byron and ask is a certain book available. Now they have hundreds of thousands of titles they can get, but that's where you start. Um, then you can go to the order page and you literally type in the name of the book that you want and the author, whether you want hardback or paperback, uh, and they'll respond to you and let you know what the availability is, uh, how much shipping is going to be for your shipping options. Uh, and you say, well, doesn't that take a little bit of extra time? It does take a little bit of extra time. So if you need your book tomorrow, this may not be the route that you want to go, although they can ship overnight. But when you know you have some books coming up, whether they're textbooks or whether there's some other books, unless it's a special order or a self-published type of title that are harder to get, uh, if it's a normal book, uh, they can probably locate it for you. So you can go to the inquiry form and ask. Then you go to the order form and type in the information and uh, respond to all the information they ask for, and uh, they'll get back with you. And if you mention uncommentary in the uh, order blank, then uh, you'll get 20% off any title. You can also subscribe to the book notes where they feature several books uh, in each note with reviews, and you can order those through Books and booksandheartsandminds.com uh, as well. Uh, but I really encourage you to check them out, especially if um, if only 10% of your book orders uh, you switch over to, to them. That'll be huge for them, and it won't cost you that much more. Uh, and I'm trying to do at least that. And so uh, I encourage you, heartsandminds.com and mention Uncommentary Podcast for a 20% discount on most items, and they'll let you know when it applies. Do you remember We Are The World? Uh, if you're old enough, you might. A bunch of rock stars got together and sang a, uh, honestly, a really cheesy song uh, for the purpose of raising funds for what was then a tremendous famine in Ethiopia. This would have been in the, in the 1980s. I was really young. Uh, well, I was in high school or whatever. But uh, nonetheless, it was uh, it was a it was a seminal cultural moment, uh, and all, so many stars, uh, so many well-known pop singers, rock singers, uh, joined in the making of that video. And as a result, awareness was raised. Uh, not all the problems were solved, but certainly some progress was made, and there was an awareness raised of uh, the tragedy that was taking place even if uh, we didn't know all of the causes at the time. Uh, But nonetheless, world hunger is a real thing, and hunger in the United States is a real thing, and hunger in your town is probably a real thing. There are uh, food deserts even in the United States. There are food emergencies. Uh, There's lack of food safety. I think you're going to hear my guests say uh, food insecurity. Uh, My guest is Kathleen Falsani, and she's co-edited a book called The End of Hunger, that deals with these things. It's about 29 chapters. Um, There's a reality that Christians or people who call themselves Christians should should really be aware that uh, God seems to be concerned about hungry people. Um, Jesus fed a multitude on more than one occasion. Uh, Jesus made sure that there was food to eat uh, at his own Passover. Uh, Jesus took care of that. Um, God sent manna in the Old Testament. There were laws in the Old Testament that allowed hungry people to glean or harvest on the edge of fields. Uh, God has always made food an important part of human existence. Uh, it's humans who often have chosen to make food less important than uh, than maybe God has. Uh, so we can be guilty, at least some of us can be guilty, of uh, realizing what's going on in some spot where there's a famine or there's a food emergency uh, that, hey, this is, a, this is an issue, somebody needs to take care of that, uh, but then we don't necessarily make a personal uh, connection to what we might be able to do. So Kathleen Falsani is the co-editor of a, a new book, The End of Hunger, Renewed Hope for Feeding of the World, and she has a resume of experience as long as a mile ribbon. She's an award-winning religion journalist and author specializing in the intersection of faith and culture, as well as global poverty, AIDS, and HIV in the sub-Saharan Africa. Your books include The Critically Acclaimed, The God Factor, Sin Boldly, The Dude Abides, which I guess is that Jeff Daniels character. Is that right?
1: Can, <laughs> Jeff Bridges. Jeff but yeah, Bridges. It's, it's about the Coen Brothers movie. They're the yeah. same
0: person, though, aren't they? I mean, they practically <laughs> are. Uh, Believer, which I think, Kathleen, I, I used to own that book, I believe. Yeah. Um, uh, and disquiet time with uh, jennifer grant mm-hmm. uh she's a longtime correspondent for religion news service uh featured writer for sojourners and was religion writer and columnist for the chicago sun times from 2000 to 2010 kathleen mm-hmm. falsani welcome to uncommentary
1: uh, it's it's my pleasure to be with you
0: so did you meet your uh pulitzer prize winning husband at the chicago sun times
1: uh, I was actually, I met him when I was in graduate school and he was a reporter at the Chicago Tribune Oh, um, and we were covering, yes. And we were covering the same courthouse when I was writing for the graduate school's news service. Very and then
0: cool.
1: I went, after we got married, I started at a different newspaper and then eventually moved to the Sun-Times. And so he was at the Tribune and I was at the Sun-Times.
0: That's awesome. Uh, well, besides marrying uh, people that you used to be in competition with, uh, and writing a lot of books and doing a lot of reporting. Who is Kathleen Falsani?
1: Well, um, I, something that's germane to the book is I'm a mom. Um, I, have a 20, I have a son who's 20 years old who um, actually has his own essay in, in the book. Uh, our son, Voshko
0: Wait a minute. That uh, little boy he, that's on your website is 20 years old now? Yes, he is. That, uh, wow.
1: Unbelievable, right? <laughs> I know. It's crazy. So we Voshko came to our family when he was nine years old and he had spent the first nine years of his life in Malawi in uh eastern Africa and so that is germane to what we're talking about in the book because hunger was something that he lived with personally so that so I'm a mom uh I'm a writer I'm a music fan I'm a a citophile um I'm enjoying immensely the this sort of golden era of television that we're in again oh wow and uh I live in California, I'm a Connecticut Yankee who's on the wrong coast, um, <laughs> and uh, I'm a Cub fan, so pray for me.
0: Wow, I mean, you've got everything covered, Middle American and both of the coasts. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: But according to your website, I think you were raised a Southern Baptist in Connecticut. I mean, that's even different than being a Connecticut Yankee.
1: It super is, right? Wow. Yeah, I was. that was the the church I was largely reared in after, from the age of 10 you know, through college.
0: That is amazing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So uh, the book is The End of Hunger, Renewed Hope for Feeding the World. Uh, now, look, I saw that We Are the World video back in the 80s. I thought we kicked that can all the way down the road and everything is cured now. Is that not true?
1: <laughs> well, we did kick it down the road,
0: which is <laughs> But excellent. not in a good way?
1: No, <laughs> no, 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 in a good way. Okay. You know, in, in those, since about the time that that video came out, Feed the World and Live Aid and all of that. Um, when we were, when I was a teenager, and we were, there was a moment culturally when we were paying attention to um, the issue of hunger globally. Uh, since that time, we have cut in half, just about experts tell me, the number of people who live with hunger in the world. Wow! But which is great.
0: But there's still about
1: but about 800 million of them. Wow! So, and one of the re- reasons we decided to do this book now is because we are within striking distance of actually ending global hunger in 10 years if we have the means to do it it's yeah. just the, it's just the will to do it so at this what point.
0: what does that actually look like if you say we are ending global hunger i realize that you know, there's not going to be a Ruth's Chris on the Serengeti plain. What does it look like for? Yeah, what does it look like when you say we can end world hunger uh, in real life?
1: Well, we're yeah, we're not talking about having, and we wouldn't want, frankly, the rest of the world to have the same dietary uh, options that Americans do. This is um, true. It means that enough people in the world would have enough. Nutrition to be healthy, potentially at least, Mm -hmm. every day. So it it, there are are plenty of people, far too many people in the world, who just don't have access to the basic nutritional, uh, the the basic nutrition to be functional and healthy, and not have a whole host of other health problems because they don't have enough. Nutrients, of the appropriate nutrients in their body. So that's what we're looking at. It means, you know, getting basic food on a regular basis to the people who don't have access to it right now.
0: So um, the book is divided up. I mean, there's lots of chapters, so they're really easy to digest, no pun mm-hmm. intended. Um, Yeah, yeah, I know that was all that came out before I could stop it. I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) You're forgiven. Uh,
0: So there are um, about 30 chapters, 29 or 30 chapters in the book uh, divided into three parts. So uh, an overview of the problem of hunger. Some of the chapters are hunger in your brain. Feed the hungry. You'll feel Mm -hmm. better too. the end of hunger. Mm -hmm. A threat to health everywhere is a threat to peace. Uh, A threat to health anywhere is a threat to peace anywhere. Uh, Mm -hmm. Bill Frist is from Tennessee, I believe. That's right. Uh, Bible, poverty, justice, and Christian obedience. Ron Sider has been writing about this for like his twice of his lifetime almost. Mm-hmm. Um, so, talk a little bit about what that uh, overview entails. So, eight hundred million people. We're looking at uh, essential nutrition mm-hmm. to keep them healthy enough to where they don't have to worry about the other things that happen when you aren't healthy because you That's don't right. have food. Uh, right. Wh- what else are we looking at? Are we looking at Western countries? Uh, doing things differently or we're looking at African countries yes. doing things differently. What does some of that look like? Yes. <laughs> it's okay. All of, it's all awesome. of the opposed. Okay. So next question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, this is a, you know, one of our, our authors, I uh, actually maybe more than one of our authors talks about this being sort of an all hands on deck moment. Okay. Um, we're not in, we we don't see the kind of um, famine that captured our imagination in the mid 80s, like Mm -hmm. the one in Ethiopia did at the time.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, There are famines happening in the world right now. There are food emergencies happening in the world right now. Um, A lot of that depends on weather. A lot of that depends on politics. But um, taking this into consideration and also the places where those aren't happening, but still people don't have enough food, it takes a multi-pronged approach to get our arms around all of us to make sure that the food gets to the right people. Um, so in that introductory portion of the book, as in the rest of the book, frankly, what Jenny Eaton-Dyer, my co-editor, and I wanted to make sure we did was to provide different kinds of voices with different sorts of expertise and gravitas, talking about... In the front of the book, the big issue, what does it really look like? What does it really mean from lots of different perspectives? So Bill Frist talks about sort of geopolitics and Jeffrey Sachs, the economist, writes about it from that sort of global economy point of view. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey Sachs is also one of the authors of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Of which the second number two is to end global hunger by twenty thirty. So he knows what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. But we also have pastors um, from Tony. Com- I think Tony's in the, the that section of the he book. Is, Tony he Ciccolo, is. Jonathan Martin um, and you know somebody like the very first chapter in the book is written by Mike Mar- Mike uh, McHarg. Science Mike is how he's known to lots of people, who is just this you know brilliant uh, autodidact genius of a person. Who you can sort of throw anything at him and say, Hey, Mike, can you, t-, as I did, Mike, can you write about what happens in our brain when we don't have enough food? And he did that, but he also talked about what happens to our brains when we help somebody else. Oh, cool. And then wrapped it all up in, in, uh, from, through the lens of, of being a believer and a follower of Christ. You know, this is what we're supposed to be doing.
0: That is, so, that is really encouraging. Yeah. Um, so, the possible impossible dream, the bread of heaven. These are some other chapters. Um, what, what caught your attention? What, what made you want to have a part in this book?
1: Well, you know, this issue is something I've seen. I, I haven't experienced hunger myself, but I've seen it in my travels around the world. And as I was mentioning earlier, you know, my son, uh, who's my only child, um, dealt with hunger, grinding hunger, uh, over long periods of time for a lot of his very early life and so um, you know when we were when he was first with us and first learning English and we would have we would say grace before a meal Vashko mm-hmm. um, was sort of famous in our family uh, for his very lengthy prayers <laughs> you know like 10-15 minutes like wow. he ever I talked about God about everything but always mentioned all of the relatives or the people he knew, the people that he was concerned about, who he loved, who were still in Malawi. Wow. Always prayed that they had enough to eat that day. That's And amazing. that they were safe. So, yeah. So it's a personal issue for me. And obviously, just, you know, as a functioning adult with a heart for the world, I am aware that people don't have enough to eat. I'm aware that this is an issue for far too many Americans, mm-hmm. even. So, I mean, the, the book was looking at global hunger but there's a chapter oh well an essay first person essay um from a woman who lives not too far from me in california lives in a a town called bombay beach california which is has one of the highest rates of poverty in the entire country um it's a little tiny place it's not far from palm springs but it's about as far from palm springs as you can imagine yeah and and she talks about her experience of not having enough food and her neighbors not having enough food and what she tries to do with the little that she has. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it's uh, – hunger is something that by virtue of just sort of my orientation in the world as a, somebody who aspires to be a follower of Christ and be able to call myself that without being ashamed um, – he told us to feed the hungry. So mm. it's something that's been on my radar, I'd say, for most of, of my life. And as a journalist who's done a lot of traveling, as somebody who's written a lot about AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa and other disease issues and uh, issues of development and equity in other parts of the world, it, it's, it's always something that um, intersects with whatever other problem is happening. If there's, uh, if there's a drought there's hunger. If there is uh, disease, there's hunger. If there is usually uh, some sort of military unrest or political unrest mm-hmm. or upheaval, there's hunger.
0: Yeah I'm, you glad you yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because those were, that was actually one of the questions I was going to ask. I, I don't remember the term. I, I, I know the term food emergency is the one you mentioned a, mo- a mm-hmm. moment ago. I don't remember that that was used a lot in years past. Maybe I just wasn't mm-hmm. aware but it, it to me, it's a really good descriptor. It's it's better than uh, – it's it's more specific than saying that there's a famine somewhere because that means one thing. But right. a, a food emergency can mean these folks need food for the next three months or they might need it for the next year. But there's a specific thing that's causing this thing right here, right now. Right. Uh, and possibly it's something we can address in a, in a hurry rather than, oh, my goodness, this is never going to change. It's sad, but nothing's ever going to happen. Mm -hmm. Because food emergencies can be happening in our own backyard. It doesn't have to be uh, halfway around the world. That's right. Uh, I mean, go ahead. There
1: are, there are things, you know, there are things that we can be doing globally that would mitigate, uh, the frequency of these food emergencies. You know, I'm thinking about, I spent time in Ethiopia in 2012 and, that country looks a lot different than what I pictured in my head as a teenager in 1985. Mm -hmm. Um, They have done a lot of work in those intervening years to try to shore up infrastructure and um, technology and distribution routes and, you know, governmental and governance and all those other things so that when they are faced with a drought or when they are faced with some sort of pestilence with the crops that they have an, enough in reserves to try to head off a food emergency. Right. Um, and there are things globally that we can do in terms of making sure that um, countries that are developing don't run out of the, the funding to have those kinds of programs so that, you know, they're better prepared to sort of pivot when there is something uh, cataclysmic that happens. Um, but we talk, we talk about food insecurity, um, rather than you know not having that food or not having the right kind of food or being at famine. If you think about that, food security means you don't have to think about where your next meal is coming from.
0: Yeah, that's a man, most, that's a big deal.
1: Yeah, most of us Americans are blessed to have that kind of security, to have that kind of thing in our life. We don't have to think about it. At least we don't have to think about it very often. But like I said, 815 million people or so around the world don't have that. Um, they they don't know where the next food is going to come from, or they don't know where it's going to come from a month from now.
0: This is Marty Duran. You're listening to Uncommentary. I'm talking with Kathleen Falsani about her book, The End of Hunger, Renewed Hope for Feeding the World. We'll be right back after this. So what does it take to keep Uncommentary on the air? Uh, technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, there's costs associated with editing. There's costs associated with scheduling. And there's not a lot more, but nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. Uh, it's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Uh, if you go to patreon.com uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as two bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20 ounce Coke one time a month. And you can become a, a $2 a month contributor, supporter level. Uh, if you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an Uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug. Uh, and these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got, like, money to spare and you want to give two fifty dollars a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot and uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentary pod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentary pod, or Patreon is monthly. And these are uh, auto drafts. So you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone and really uh, you never miss it. So that's patreoncom slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. So part two is the first 1000 days, young women, mothers and children. So I'm guessing that's like early childhood, the first three years of a kid's life or something like that.
1: The first thousand days, it talks about if I'm not mistaken from um, basically conception to the, through the first, you know, two and a half, okay. eight, three years of life. So it's, we're looking at the the development of the child in utero and the development of child of the child in the first couple years of their lives where they say nutrition is the most um crucial Mm. element one of the most crucial elements obviously but um you know so the mother when she's pregnant with the child is she herself getting enough nutrition right so that the, the, the the child is developing correctly in utero and then after that it's you know it's brain function it's musculature it's Um, neurology, it's all of the things are, are basically tied to what the child, the nutrition that the child receives.
0: I don't know if there are any more, uh, devastating images that you ever see on the news than a child who is starving to death. That is just the most gruesome and heart rending, uh, thing to think about. And moms who are having to hold them as they die, Uh, I, it's just absolutely horrid. And, uh, and I'm reminded in, uh, in the gospels where, um, you know, we try to spiritualize that part about if, if you offend one of these, my little ones or something like that, but there's the, there's the other, uh, scene where Jesus brings a child in front of his disciples and says, if you don't become like this child, so he's not, uh, you know, he's not spiritualizing that at that point. No, This is like, the kid is here. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you don't become like him, you can't be a leader. You can't be, you know, the, the leader is the one who becomes like this little kid. Um, so I think there's a real danger that, uh, that we don't see enough. Uh, we don't see deeply enough in these images, uh, mm. that this really is how we treat these children is, is what we think about Jesus in some way, shape or form that's Uh, right there's a chapter in here hunger and sex trafficking talk a little bit about what's going on with that
1: so that's a chapter written by nicole Lim, who is um you know woman of faith who does incredible work in lots of uh fraught areas of the world working with girls and women many of whom have been human trafficked sex trafficked are the are the survivors of sexual violence um, and she's writing about, and you'll forgive me, I haven't read her chapter in, in, in a little bit, but, um, yeah, I obviously worked with it. Um, she, I think is writing about, uh, a young woman in, in Kenya who, mm. you know, is dealing with all sorts of fraught things that, that a girl or a young woman or any of us should, shouldn't have to deal with.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and there, you know, she, I think at one point in her life, she had to make the decision between feeding herself or feeding her family or feeding her child and uh, sex work. Wow. It was the, you know, and she was forced into it um, and she was coerced into it and there was violence involved and there were very few options. And so that's where when you talk about food insecurity, hunger and malnutrition, there, it's, it's not just one thing, it's complicated. You know, it's 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 uh, it's like women's health in the United States is complicated Mm -hmm. by virtue of where they live, by virtue of their economic status, by virtue of their, you know, who they are racially, culturally, ethnically, whether they're married or not, whether they have children or not. I mean, all of those things kind of come together um, to make this a a complex and sometimes complicated issue. But um, so that's where in that chapter, Nicole's writing about this particular, particularly fraught, um, situation that far too many, uh, millions of women and, and girls in the world find themselves.
0: Then in part three is a way forward. Yes. What we can There's do. Hope. <laughs> uh, so when you eat, sit down.
1: Yes. Yeah, so That's one of my favorite chapters in the book, which was, uh, contributed by chef Rick Bayless, yes. uh, who's a very well-known uh, chef and a lovely human being, um, in Chicago, who's based in Chicago, and you know he he's done a ton of work around um, food security and hunger in the United States. He he and his wife have done you know marvelous things. A lot of it very outside the public eye. Excuse me. And he's somebody he owns all these restaurants, and he he works with food, and he's a very conscious person about. He's very deliberate about the way he lives, and in our conversation, one of the things he said, it's as simple as you can ha- change your relationship with food and how much you consume and what you consume and why you consume it and how you feel wow. by your literal posture. Mm-hmm. Don't, you know, open the refrigerator and pull, you know, if you open the refrigerator and eat by the refrigerator, at least pull up a chair, <laughs> sit down. You know, I, think I think I'm, I think I'm, I'm quoting Anne Lamott or, or uh, <laughs> paraphrasing Anne Lamott in there somewhere. But, um, you know, he says you hey, just sit down, sort of honor the food, take the time to taste what you're eating, to experience what you're eating. And if you're thoughtful about it, you might think about like, where does this come from?
0: Yeah. Very, Joel who who grew it? Who yeah. moved
1: it? You know, it's something as simple as, as that. And he talks about a number of, of fairly s- simple, it would seem, adjustments that we can make to have a different kind of relationship with with food, which would then perhaps lead us to have a different relationship with people who are hungry.
0: You mentioned your son praying uh for people uh in his former country to have mm-hmm. enough to eat that day. Um yeah. uh, about six months ago, I guess, I was sitting at the table. I think it was by myself when this happened, my wife was gone somewhere, and um I was eating or getting ready to eat and, and I prayed and it was just a you know the the normal southern prayer for the blessing. <laughs> um, you know, bless his food, thank you for it, that kind of thing. And yeah. when I when I started eating, I was like You know, it's not that that was wrong, but that's so different than what a farmer in the 1800s praying thank you for this food would have meant. The context would have been so completely different Mm
1: -hmm. because he's
0: thinking about from seed and rain and heat and drought and pestilence and all this kind of stuff to now he's eating it. And I'm just thinking about the actual preparation of it and that I have something to eat. Mm -hmm. Your son's thinking about people... That may not have anything to eat that day, and he's asking literally as Jesus commanded us to for the daily bread for people mm-hmm. that he knows. Um, so this cha- this may be the first chapter in the book that I read actually. Um, so that because I'm I'm all over that part about uh, mm. how we how we approach food itself
1: uh, mm-hmm. and what
0: what it means for God to have provided it. From the garden to the table. Does Amy Grant sing this chapter? Is there like a DVD? Is there a MP3 download? (laughs) Speaking people from Tennessee,
1: she 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 could sing some of it because it's so very lovely as 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 she is, and so is her heart, you know. And she talks about making a meal for her family and what they do, the practice of you know inviting people into their home Mm. and and how her children have uh, affected the way she thinks about food. She's got, I think, kids about the same age as mine, and or somewhere in there, you know, these, these millennials and generation Z or whatever we're calling it mm-hmm. are, seem to have a consciousness in real time about things like this, that maybe their parents didn't quite have.
0: That's a really um, good point. I think they respond to news viscerally in a way that I'm a boomer and the way, in a way that yeah. I don't, for me, it's factual Right. But for them, it's meaningful. And I, that's a really good insight.
1: Yes. Oh, wow. That's smart. That's absolutely right. I don't think I've had anybody say it quite that way. Hey, if, I right. talk,
0: if I talk long enough, I'm going to say something that's decent.
1: No, that's great. I love <laughs> that. And his dad's a boomer. I'm, you know, I'm Gen X. His dad's a boomer. He's Gen Z or whatever. The, maybe he's the tail end of millennials. I'm not quite sure. Whatever. But, you know, and I also think about when I was 15, If I had been able to log on to Twitter and see something unfolding in real time Mm -hmm. in Ethiopia, how much more of an impact that might have had on me? I was already moved when I read whatever article, probably in Newsweek, um, about what Bob Geldof was doing. And Bob Geldof literally did all of this because he turned on the news one night and saw a BBC report. From outside of Addis Ababa, wow. and was like, "Why is this happening? I need to know more." And because he was a wealthy rock star, was able to get on a plane and go f- check it out for himself. But you know, I think about would the how, how things, how people are responding to things now, um, and how these younger people are responding. And then now you have a model like Greta Thunberg, who's mm. who is their age, yeah. and is making this global impact. So. Yeah, I have a lot of hope for the future of hungry people because I have a young person in my house and I see how he sees the world.
0: That's awesome. So chapter 28, near to to the end, uh, Mm -hmm. ending hunger starts with modernizing how we deliver food aid. Bob Corker, who's a guy that I've never met, but I really respect. um, When you started down this uh, almost or about 25 minutes ago, we started talking about it. the earthquake in Haiti was, I think, ten years ago next month, and That's I, right. I was able to go down there. I got, I landed in the country two weeks after the earthquake happened. Oh wow! And was there for about a week. And when we were leaving, this, I don't think I'll ever forget this. Not because it was gross or anything, or you know, deathly, but it was just this anomaly. There were all these dump trucks outside the airport, mm-hmm. uh, lined up for, I don't know, maybe half a mile, and nobody to drive them, and nobody yeah. to load anything onto them. But right. then in this other little part, not far from there, were bags and bags and bags and bags stamped with, I think it was USAID on the side, and mm-hmm. nobody to distribute them, and nobody mm-hmm. to manage them. And so eventually they were going to be sold on the black market or something like that. Um, so so there has, there's been this long, long time uh, issue with logistics about getting stuff to people who need it while it's still worth right. eating.
1: And I've had the similar experience. I've been to Haiti not as soon after the the earthquake as you were, and we were there looking at mother's health, mm. pregnant mother's health. But I remember coming into about six days after the the big, big earthquake in Nepal a few years ago. Yeah. Um, and I was on a plane that was full of aid coming in and a similar situation. People want to give and they do give. And, you know, our country responds um, generously and, um, but we can't control whether there are enough trucks or roads open mm-hmm. in a place like Kathmandu, for instance, um, to actually physically move move the supplies and the foodstuffs or whatever else there was coming in, medical supplies. Um, again, the sum of this is trying to keep developing countries in a healthy enough situation with funding all the time, mm-hmm. and trying to work with countries that are transparent where the funding isn't being absconded with or going into the pockets of politicians. It's very complicated to do all this, but yeah. there are people out there who who do their best to try to make sure those things aren't happening, um, and we don't want people to not give because they think, like, oh, it's just going to go into somebody's pocket. It doesn't. The majority of the time, it doesn't. Yeah. And if we if we keep international aid from our country, which is a teeny tiny portion of our federal, but tiny, tiny mm-hmm. portion of our federal budget. that makes such a huge difference internationally. If we keep it funded, we have a better chance of keeping these countries healthy so that again, they can sort of respond in a, a healthier way when something cataclysmic does happen so that, you know, if, if, so that there are enough trucks or there is a plan to yeah. open roads that have been destroyed or what have you, you know,
0: I think it's good for, um, I mean, I guess there's some people that, uh, you know, that the plea for humanity just falls on deaf ears, but by crackies, the economics might get their attention. I mean, it's worth it Exactly. <laughs> if you don't love the people, it's at right. least worth it because in the, in the end, the investment is going to produce stability. That's uh, right. So uh, it's just, I, I, I want people, I mean, I really hope people begin to think about this issue, especially more holistically. Yes. Um, It's not just like handing out canned goods. This is, this is major stuff that needs a lot of attention. Uh, And, and I'm glad to hear that it's solvable in 10 years from now.
1: It is. And what we don't want people to do is just to become sort of paralyzed by the enormity of the problem. Um, You know, Mike, McHarg in his, in the opening chapter of the book talks about this, that our brains are not made to process numbers bigger than about a hundred thousand. Like when you start yeah. to say a million or two million, you can't really picture what that crowd shot looks like, yeah. you know? Yeah. So when you say 800 million, our brains just go tilt. Hmm. So you have to start by doing what you can with what you have. You know, we, we don't, we can't do, we can't do everything, but what we can do, we must do. And so what we're trying to do in each chapter of the book and in the back, there's resources for people to be able to take an action, however small or however large that might be within their means, to do something that will be making life a little bit easier for somebody who doesn't have enough to eat right now. The book And is, everybody can do something.
0: The book is The End of Hunger, Renewed Hope for Feeding the World, edited by Jenny Eaton-Dyer and my guest today, Kathleen Falsani. Are you on Twitter or anything like that?
1: I am. I am. My uh, my handles on Twitter and Insta are at GodGirl, which is G O D G R R L.
0: Which is a lot easier than Kathleen with a C. <laughs>
1: yeah. It is. Or they have to spell the first and last name. The chances <laughs> of somebody getting one of those wrong are pretty high. But yeah, you can find me awesome. uh, by Googling some approximation of what you think my last name is spelled like or GodGirl with two R's. There you go.
0: And it will be in the episode notes, so you are covered.
1: <laughs> Excellent.
0: Kathleen, thank you. thank you so much for being with me today.
1: Marty, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening, everybody.
0: As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review, and whichever podcaster you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use. Uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from com. Uh, on your Facebook page, or if you tweet the link or retweet the, uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solidario Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast.